It's Due South on WUNC, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Bull City. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Let us commence our Friday North Carolina News and Politics Roundtable discussion. Here to help you get caught up are Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief WUNC, Gary Robertson, State House Reporter Associated Press, Jason DeBruin, Health Reporter at WUNC, and Mary Helen Jones, Political Reporter at Spectrum News. Plenty to review on this final Friday of the month. We're going to begin with a ruling out of federal court. But before we do that, some sounds of our news and political week. A federal court has blocked the GOP changes to the rule because it could result in erroneously throwing out legitimate votes due to poll worker or postal service error. The confusion has led to sporadic walk-offs by affected cafeteria workers, instructional assistants, and maintenance and transportation staff. As an employee, I am hurting. Being informed of and given a competitive wage only to have it taken is insulting and unethical. We think it does more harm than good. And so our first priority is to protect our students. Now in North Carolina, this patient may experience delays in getting the life-saving care that she needs. So there's more caterpillars present in a cicada year. Therefore, there's more damage to the plants. My name's Janet Cowell, and I'm running for mayor of Raleigh. Gambling to gubernatorial politics this hour. Plenty to get to, and we're going to start with that ruling, an injunction issued earlier this week by a federal judge. The area in question... uh, Stemming from a new North Carolina election law pertains to same-day registration. Colin, get us going. Simply put, what is the ruling uh, and why does it come now? Yeah, so this is uh, part of uh, an ongoing lawsuit over the various elections changes that the legislature passed last year. Uh, What they're doing here is sort of, uh, I guess it's sort of a minor victory for Democrats and the voting rights groups. Uh, the, the big piece of this law, right, is the change in the deadline for absentee ballots, the idea that it has to be received by the County Board of Elections the day of the election and not postmarked by that date and received a couple days afterwards. Uh, the ruling here really only overturns part dealing with same-day res- registration. Basically, if you go in to the early voting site and you register to vote, how, how does that um process of verification work. They send you a postcard. If the postcard comes back undeliverable, you know, do they uh, throw out your registration and say, actually, you didn't get to vote? Mm -hmm. Um, So this is basically saying they can't change that process. The the process is not, you know, essentially valid enough the way it is. There's just too many things that can go wrong and can invalidate someone's vote. There are a number of options available to people to cast a ballot in North Carolina. 17 days of early voting, same-day registration has long been on the books. Gary, I believe that you and I covered a federal court case a decade ago in which Republicans tried to strike down same-day registration. Regardless of whether or not we were in that Thomas Schroeder courtroom together, Mm -hmm. uh, there have been efforts to strike down same-day registration before or to remove it by Republicans. That's not what this is. But if you can, Gary, frame up for us, how significant of a ruling is this? How many votes does it or doesn't it potentially kind of impact? Well, for instance, I believe in 2020, 2020 in the November elections, over 100,000 people in North Carolina took advantage of same-day registration. And a very small percentage did not, when they you know, turned in their paperwork and their address was verified. It could not be verified. So a couple thousand uh, applications, their votes didn't count in that method. And so 
when you have close races, let's remember we had this race between Justice Newby and Justice Beasley just a couple years back where a statewide race was decided by essentially 400 votes. That's significant. And when you think about how we generally have closely divided elections statewide in North Carolina, each party is maneuvering to ensure that, you know, assert that their people can get out or right. more people can get out depending on what outcome they would like to see. The margins are extremely thin. And I think that's probably the best example. We also had this gubernatorial race eight years ago in which Cooper unseated incumbent McCrory by less than 11,000 votes. Right. So the margin of error, the margin of between victory and defeat can be exceedingly slim. Uh, Mary Helen, remind us what else is, uh, I guess, shaping up as we think about the election. Early voting starts in three weeks. Uh, Let me back up and say, where does this go from here? Is this going to be challenged? Is this going to be upended? Is this like a point in the the journey? For this specific piece, uh, I spoke with Michael Watley, who is the chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party, and he said they don't really feel the need to appeal this because, like Colin said, it is such a small portion of this larger right. elections bill. They still have a lot of Republican victories, which is absentee ballots must be received by Election Day. Poll observers are given many more rights. So right now, when it comes to this singular injunction, the Republican Party, at least as early of earlier this week, said they're fine to let this go to the state board to figure out a way to give those voters notice. Well, I was going to say this Speaker Moore and a key legislator on elections issues put out a statement Monday saying that they would be working with the State Board of Elections so that there would be some kind of due process for these voters who, after um, their address came back as unverified, that they would have some process to uh, appeal that decision and potentially continue to vote under that process. So, It sounds like that Republicans believe this can be resolved in the short term, at least administratively. Note of context here, in case anyone is wondering, the federal judge in this case, Thomas Schroeder, is a George W. Bush appointee. Uh, I think sometimes people wonder about that. And just another seemingly unrelated reminder, but voter identification, photo ID is required at the polls. And there's no legislation, there's no litigation that we're expecting to upend that at this point in advance of the March 5th primary. That's right. There's a pending uh, voter ID lawsuit that's still making its way through the federal courts. Don't know yet. I think we're waiting to find out when a trial date will be set, but it, it won't it won't affect the March primary. OK, North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South. Let's move on. Thousands of people on the state health plan will lose coverage of anti-obesity medication. The state health plan board of trustees voted Thursday to remove coverage for expensive anti-obesity drugs such as Wegovy and Saxenda. People already on the medication will not be grandfathered into current prices. Jason, WNC Health Reporter, why the change? Uh, It's just simply too expensive is what the state health uh, plan board of trustees decided. They had to, you know, they really thought about this decision, chewed on it a lot yesterday at the the board meeting, because I think every board member wants to continue to to provide this medication uh, to to people. You know, but there's 24, 25,000 people that have a a prescription. It costs $1,300 per script 
per month. That would amount to like $170 million for the state health plan in a year, which just for context is 10% or would be about 10% of the overall pharmacy spend for the entire plan. So mm. really a significant amount of money. But of course, on the flip side, they these are life-saving medications, right? I mean, people with obesity rely on these medications to keep their weight under control and to prevent things like diabetes and other weight-related and weight-associated health problems. Um, so, you know, the, I... You really could tell that the board struggled with the with the decision, but ultimately decided that their responsibility as a fiduciary to the entire plan outweighed their responsibility to continue providing coverage. I gather there's not generic option a, a generic option here. Uh, is that if I, you're not in the pharmaceutical industry, but is that in the pipeline? Is, well, <clears throat> so that exactly. So that's. In, in, the, in the normal terms of how you think, like, you get a drug and then a generic com- coming on, that, exactly situa- that exact situation is not, in the, is not on the pipeline right now. However, there are other medications that are coming online, right? So Novo Nordisk makes Wagovi um, and Ozempic, which is the same medication. But because it's so effective and because it's uh, so lucrative, other uh, drug companies are coming out with trials of their own medications – so it is possible that in like three to five years, there might be a lot more competition. There might be a lot more drugs in this class of medicine. So prices could come down. But, you know, the problem there, of course, is we're talking three to five years, not three mm-hmm. to five weeks. <laughs> so I have a, a, a bit of a reaching question here. Maybe you can address and maybe we can just move on from the issue of obesity affects about 25 percent of North Carolinians. So this is something that a lot of people need care for. And I'm curious if anything else comes to mind due to excessive, expensive drug prices where medication that a lot of people might need has been ruled out, has been not uh, covered by the state health plan because of because of cost. Is this something that we've seen before? Nothing immediately comes to mind. I mean, you know, and and even maybe just even staying with with weight, um, you know, bariatric surgery is covered, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I talked with a lot of people who say, you know, the state health plan has actually been pretty progressive in covering a lot of weight-associated illnesses. For example, it has covered Wachovia for, you know, four or five years now. There's a lot of places around the country that never even covered it in the first place. So you could say, you know, <laughs> better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. I don't know, right? But, I mean, in, in many ways, the state health plan has already been pretty forward-thinking in terms of what it covers um, in this area. Jason DeBruin is here on the North Carolina News and Political Roundup here on Due South, along with Gary Robertson, Mary Helen Jones, and Colin Campbell. I'm going to give uh, our resident PA, not entirely our resident PA, but um, our resident PA here at Due South, the final word on this before we step aside for a moment. Uh, this morning, I woke up, I asked my wife, who is a PA and has worked in obesity medicine for the last eight years, uh, about this story. And she said, hey, you got to stop calling them weight loss drugs. And I said, what now? And uh, this is something she wrote down for me. She said, calling them popular weight loss drugs trivializes the epidemic of obesity in this country. Obesity is a chronic disease with many biological features that predisposes self-perpetuation but is frequently oversimplified and misunderstood as a lifestyle choice. Many medical conditions can be optimized through lifestyle, but they are not stigmatized and discriminated against like obesity. That is, full disclosure, my wife. She has worked in obesity medicine for eight years. I thought that was an interesting contextual point. We got much more to get to here on the North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South, an education update on the other side.
Welcome back. It's Due South. 24 years ago this week, a record 24 inches of snow fell in Raleigh during a 24-hour period. The massive storm knocked out power for 100,000 properties in the Triangle, shuttered schools for a week, and led to a curfew in Durham. This storm came up in a recent interview with Carolina Hurricanes head coach Rod Brindamore. Brindamore, if you don't know, was born and raised in Canada. He finished his playing career with the Canes, and then he stayed put. He's been here for two decades. I asked him what it was about North Carolina that led him to stay here. The people. People are great down here. They're just, they are. And people are great everywhere. But there's a difference. I noticed it immediately when I came here. First, I, I tell the story all the time. I got traded here. It was in the snowstorm of the century hit the day I got here. I'm like, seriously, North Carolina? I didn't think that this, you know. This is how it was supposed to be. I had no clothes yet because I was supposed to, I was traded on the road. I was supposed to go back to get my stuff. And I'm just like two weeks shut down, stuck in a hotel and couldn't have been treated nicer by people. I had no idea who I was. I was going to a grocery store and people are like, they could see I was in a suit. And I'm like, this guy's not dressed right. Like they didn't know who I was. And they were like, come on in, like get in the front of the line. Like it was all these little things that I wasn't accustomed to coming from Philadelphia. No, no, no. I grew up outside of Boston. I get like it. they would not, not nice be letting you in. Right. They don't let right. you in. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's just little things. And, and so I was always like, what's the angle? You know, what, what do you want? Why are you let, being nice to me? It took a while for me to be, that's just how people are. That's Carolina Hurricanes head coach Rod Brindamore on the storm of the century, his term. Uh, I like it. The massive snowfall uh, of 24 inches was taking place 24 years ago from right now. Gary Robertson, you were here at that time. I'm going to pick on you because I don't think. I was the, there. Yes, you were there. What do you remember, if anything? It, well, I mean, I grew up in in the Washington, D.C. area, so yeah. I was used to snow. But it was a, it was a big deal. And uh, at the time, I had a a daughter who was three years old, two and a half years oh, old. Man. So that was fun. really fun. But my other two children were in the womb, uh, my two twin boys. Yeah. And, and my wife, uh, She li- we like to talk about, and, and she did this. This was all very medically appropriate. She actually took a few, um, actually took a few sled rides, very pregnant. And okay. uh, we like to talk about that. And they're doing fine now. They're both almost 24. But uh, it was a great it was a great time, and uh, as long as you didn't have to leave your neighborhood and you had enough, uh, you had enough wood or had enough food in the grocery store in your uh, refrigerator, it was it was pretty neat. Storm of the century. All right, back to our panel here on the Due South North Carolina Friday News and Politics Roundup. Gary Robertson is here, so too is Colin Campbell, Mary Helen Jones, and we welcome in Liz Schlemmer, education reporter here at WUNC, who joins our conversation to give us an update on a story that we reviewed extensively a week ago. The story is out of Durham, where, reminder, the district doled out raises to at least 1,300 support staff, cafeteria workers, janitorial staff, occupational therapists, among others, and then did something of an about-face, essentially saying whoopsie and retracting the raises. Major frustration ensued. Some staff walked off the job last week. Liz, what happened this week? There was a school board meeting last night. It was packed with people. It was very tense. Many employees um, who were affected by this showed up to speak at public comment. Um, Parents came. A lot of the parents were those um, with children who receive special education services who said that my kids are really affected by this Mm -hmm. because their instructional assistants, their physical therapists are affected. Um, The board came out with at least a short-term solution saying that 
uh, employees will not have to pay back any raises that they received in their July through December paychecks. And their January paychecks they will also receive, but as a second paycheck. Um, However, it is unclear exactly what is going to be happening in February on. Looks like their, their raises will be revoked. 1,300 people we mentioned. Let's hear from at least one of them. I want clarification because I feel like I'm a cafeteria woman. I didn't ask to be an accountant. They're the accountant. They're held accountable. Somebody signed off on it. They did, it just didn't pass the, the desk with nothing. You get what I'm saying? He sits up there. He makes six figures. I make crumbs. He could at least make sure my crumbs was right. That's DPS employee Nikea Watson uh, speaking to you, Lish Lemmer, yesterday. Yes. And I I assume that she's talking about Superintendent Mubenga there. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard a lot of people blaming him and his cabinet, his administration. Um, I saw a picture on the wall saying uh, fire Mubenga. So there, you know, there were parents also calling for accountability for those responsible. A big unanswered question when you were with us last week was how did this happen? Why did this happen? what's the timeline for it to take three months to, to for them to realize that there was a problem here? Do we have any clear answers on that? I don't think we do yet. I mean, I've been saying it's it's hard to explain this story because the district is not explaining it very well. Um, they say that it is under investigation, um, that they will look into those questions, but it's not clear exactly how this accounting error occurred. Um, one piece of information we got last night is that the board chair said that these raises were never passed in their budget last year. What we do know, I believe, push back here if I'm wrong on any of this, from conversations with you and conversations I've had with with DPS employees, is that a consultant was brought in. There was a big discussion about raises. Mm -hmm. They chose proactively to adjust the salaries, adjust the compensation for more than a thousand people. This wasn't, just to be clear, it Mm -hmm. wasn't as though somebody made a rounding error or some tab got moved over and oops, people made more money. This was whether they had the money or not, there was a conscious choice to do this at some point along the line, correct? Yes, there were discussions about it. It appears these raises were intended. Um, employees received communication that they were receiving them. They've been paid these yeah. raises for several months. Here is DPS Board Chair uh, Bettina Umstead uh, talking about whether or not these raises were ever uh, actually slotted into a budget. We have asked the staff to identify money from the fund balance because our budget for this year did not include the wages that were paid from July through December. So that is why we asked for this budget amendment today. So Yeah, so she's talking about the solution here, too, which is that the school board identified $4.5 million um, essentially in its budget reserves to pay for these raises um, through this month and so that workers don't have to pay anything back. Uh, I don't mean to sound overly incredulous. I actually don't think I sound incredulous yet at all. Um, There's been a total lack of transparency here. There have not been any press conferences held by DPS to answer any questions about this. I have lots of questions. You have lots. Everyone Mm -hmm. in this room has questions. Why has there, if you want to take a guess, why has there been such a lack of transparency? I mean, yes, we've all asked for press conferences. Parents have, reporters have. Um, So there hasn't been that opportunity to ask these things directly. The only thing I can suppose is that they're really concerned about the legal ramifications. And, you know, and they're saying this is still under investigation. Do any of our other panelists want to jump in here? If you do, you just you, you throw – give me uh, – Colin, go ahead. Uh, just to, to Liz's point about legal ramifications, I will be very interested to see if there's not some sort of lawsuit about this because I think there's probably some, at least some 
obviously I'm not a lawyer, but some sort of case to be made that if you raise my salary right now, and then a few months from now, you take that money away from me and say, <laughs> I'm laugh. not going to uh, actually give you that raise. Sorry if you bought something on an installment plan, assuming you were going to have more in your paycheck next month. Ain't right. going to happen. I think there's probably grounds for a lawsuit there. Uh, more education stories to get to in a minute. But I do want to hone in on one uh, element of this, Liz, that we haven't spent a lot of time on. We talk about these support staff, uh, cafeteria workers, mechanics for buses, janitorial staff, also occupational and physical therapists. Mm-hmm. And these are staff members who work predominantly with students who have uh, challenges, special needs. Uh, and this is an area within the students. These are uh, folks who are being impacted disproportionately due to this, I'll call it a mess. I think it was apparent last night because many of the parents who came to speak at public comment said, my kid receives special education services. And they rely on the occupational therapists who help kids, you know, learn to hold a pencil on physical therapists, on language therapists. One mom said, you know, my child might not be able to speak if it wasn't for this man sitting here in the audience whose pay has just been cut. Okay. Um, this story is one we're going to continue to follow. It's a fluid one. It's a messy one. Uh, and perhaps uh, DPS, if you'd like to hold a press conference or if you uh, need a forum, Do South is here for you if you'd like to come and chat about what is going on, why, and where you go from here, short, medium, and long term. We've got Lee Schlemmer here on the Do South North Carolina News and Politics uh, Roundup, as well as Mary Helen Jones, Gary Robertson, and Colin Campbell. Meanwhile, on the education front, a municipal v. legislative legal fight is a brewing. That is because the Chapel Hill Carborough City School District has taken a public stance against the recently enacted state law known as the Parents' Bill of Rights. We think it does more harm than good. And so our first priority is to protect our students. Um, we'll deal with the possible legal or political ramifications as they come up. Oh, Gary, why would there be possible legal or political ramifications? What is Chapel Hill Carborough um, fixing to do here? Or what do they say they're going to do? Well, if Liz can chime in if, if I misspeak, but I know that last week uh, the board approved a new, uh, basically c- complied with the Parents' Bill of Rights legislation that was approved by the General Assembly, except in two areas. One had to do with requiring stu- uh, requiring uh, teachers or staff to alert a parent when a child wants to be uh, spoke at by, excuse me, wants to be uh, thought of as a different pronoun mm-hmm. or a different name. And also there's a requirement within the Parents' Bill of Rights to prevent the, the instruction of issues related to gender identity and sexuality in grades K through four. And I know that the board said, um, you know, that we don't believe that's the right way to go. And I know that there are some legislators who think uh, that this is going to turn out to be an an issue that's going to have to be discussed in the short session. They've used the word defiant. Uh, If somebody wants to maybe uh, pick at this, there's the, the, the policy versus the political nature of this. There's no mechanism of enforceability as it pertains to the Parents' Bill of well, Rights. Is it, well, or, there ahead. is. So the State Board of Education um, passed a policy on how um, parents can ask for parental concern hearings if they believe that their school board is not complying with the law in its in its policies. Mm. So they could take this to the State Board of Education. What I don't think is that there is real like teeth to this enforcement, um, but there is at least a process for 
um, for parents to complain about it. And I guess the legislature is looking at revisiting this. Uh, Senator Jim Perialist, I guess, talked to you and said he's he's <laughs> thinking that this will generate some kind of bill. I don't know what the penalty would be at the legislative level, but they clearly want to do something. Yeah, I mean, he didn't talk about specific penalties, but he said that he does believe that there is a, a majority in the General Assembly who finds this unacceptable. Um, you know, the law passed um, with, with really... Uh, you know, strong Republican support. I don't think there was a lot of disagreement on that side of the aisle. And and as we've always been told from the legislature that municipalities, counties, school boards are creatures of the legislature and they can change and adjust them and tell them to do things however they wish. And we've seen lots of that. I've seen every single session has one of these things right. where it's like, OK, this local government's doing something we don't like. Let's jump on in there and do you know, stick it to them. Right. Not just education. They're airports and water. Land use and zoning. Bags. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> there, are, there are many examples. Uh, Mary Helen, what are you watching in terms of next steps as it pertains to this, I'll call it a culture war development story uh, out of Chapel Hill, Carborough? Well, this was a really big debate in the legislature this year because there was a veto override. So we got extended debate over mm-hmm, this so-called mm-hmm. Parents' Bill of Rights. So... I think the short session is really going to be interesting. The Republicans still have a supermajority in both chambers. So right. they have the ability, as long as every member is in line, to pass whatever they want and override the governor's veto. So like Colin was saying, if they were to come up with a mechanism for, I don't know if punishment is the right word, but punishment um, for counties that don't follow this parent's Bill of Rights, the short session is when we will see that happen in a few months. Let's widen the education scope here. The governor returned home this week to Rocky Mount, specifically Nashville Elementary School, where uh, he was a student once upon a time. Governor Cooper, in the final year of his term-limited tenure, wants to build a coalition to make changes to education policy. Cooper also designated 2024 as the year of public schools. Gary, do we expect this to uh, yield notable results? Well, I think the governor realized afterwards when we talk and he talked to reporters that this is going to be a long term issue that might continue well beyond when he leaves office. And of course, he would like to see a Democrat succeed him who has like minded views. Um, we know that there's still narrow, narrow super majorities in both the House and the Senate for Republicans. And when the governor talks about wanting to put a moratorium on spending for the Opportunity Scholarship Program, which uh, critics refer to as private school vouchers. Um, That seems highly unlikely because the legislature, the GOP-led legislature, has made universal uh, private school scholarships access a a big big part, a a linchpin of their education policy. And so I don't see that happening. Now, he likes to talk about how it could be a coalition similar to what he created in Medicaid uh, expansion. But as you remember, he started that in early 2017, and it just now started in December of 2023. So, again, I'm sure he has I'm sure he has a sober viewpoint on how far he can get with his legislature in the limited time left he has as governor. Well, and it took Senate president or pro tem Phil Berger getting on with Medicaid expansion for right. Medicaid expansion to happen. So Governor Cooper is championing championing this like he did Medicaid expansion, but it took the most powerful Republican in the state 
to get on board for that to actually get through the legislature. And I years, mean, right? Yes, years. <laughs> Many years. Let's also remember it is an election year, so Republicans will want to put a good for, put foot forward to the, the electorate. And so perhaps that means higher teacher pay than anticipated, which is always uh, something that they can they can run on. And it's been done for many years. So we'll see what happens. North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Do South, chatting news, chatting politics, as always. Uh, we're interested to hear from you. Are there particular topics throughout the week? Are there political things that you would like us to spend more time on? You can send us an email. DoSouthRadio.org uh, is our website and our email. There we go, Jeff, uh, is DoSouth at WUNC.org. Gary, you mentioned a moment ago a Democrat with like-minded views. Well, lo and behold, there is one. It's the attorney general. His name is Josh Stein. He is running to replace uh, Roy Cooper, and you spent some time with the uh, Democrat who's seeking the nomination. We'll talk about his pri- one of his primary opponents here in a moment. Uh, but you spent a little bit of time with the sitting attorney general. He's been in that post for eight years. Uh, what did you glean from your visit with Attorney General Stein? This well, week? I'll have to say it was a brief of event, but uh, he was at UNC Chapel Hill in the pit, if people know about that, to talk about kickoff for a new student group promoting his campaign. And, you know, he, he does. I, I asked him whether he felt like his campaign was basically, if you elect me, you get a third term of Cooper. Of mm-hmm. course, he's his, he says he's his own person. Obviously, he has different views, but they are quite allied. Um, he was uh, he worked in uh, the when Roy Cooper was attorney general in the 2000s. Uh, Josh Stein worked as head of the Consumer Protection Division. So they are are close politically and in terms of their views on on government. Uh but, uh, you know, there was about a it was kind of rainy, nasty, as Mary Helen knows, about 150 people were out there on Thursday uh, to cheer on uh, Josh Stein, who it will face uh, will be one of a handful of candidates in the March 5th primary. The other uh, major challenger would be uh, rival would be uh, former associate justice Mike Morgan. Wake County judge prior to that. Mary Helen, you spent some time with Mike Morgan this week. Uh, Tell us about uh, your time with this other gubernatorial candidate on the Democratic side seeking the nomination. The difference between the two this week that I saw is what they are focused on mainly. Okay, Mike Morgan is focused on the primary. Obviously, that is the race he needs to win to continue. We went out to Alamance County, spoke to some Burlington voters, introducing himself to people who maybe have seen his name on that statewide ballot in 2016 for the state Supreme Court, but Mm -hmm. don't know who he is. Whereas in his speech at UNC, Josh Stein was focused on Mark Robinson, was focused on November. So I think that's really the stark difference I saw between the two of them this week. Mike Morgan really having to take that effort to go put his name out there and match his name with his face to voters who, as we have seen in the last presidential election cycle, maybe don't the the state Supreme Court races don't get as much attention as other races on the ballot. So they might have seen his name, but they don't know who he is. Right. These are both establishment figures. Uh, but Stein is more of an establishment figure. He's been an attorney general. He's been the attorney general for eight years. He's got all the establishment support. The governor's behind him, a bunch yeah. of other people mm-hmm. in the Democratic Party. Lots of money. Name in the news media more frequently because he files lawsuits all the time because that's what attorney generals do, right? Uh, Mary Helen Jones is here in studio. So too is Liz Schlemmer. Jason DeBruin will be back on the other side. Gary Robertson and Colin Campbell also chatting news and politics on this Friday here on Do South. Uh, a quick question for you. Uh, Do South is producing a series of segments and shows with a focus toward 
This 2024 election year, we're calling it Purple Ballot, and we're interested in what you would like to hear. Are there particular offices, candidates, or issues on your mind? Again, that email address, south at wnc.org. We'll be back in a moment. The North Carolina Friday News and Politics Roundup rolls on here on Due South on this final Friday of January. It's the 25th. Former Tar Heel great Vince Carter is 47 years young today. Carter was nominated to the Basketball Hall of Fame last month. Inductees will be named later this spring. I'm Jeff here in WNC's Durham studios with Colin, Jason, Mary Helen, and Gary. We're going to have, hopefully, maybe, perhaps, a little bit of fun here in our C segment. We're going to just drop in some of the weeks. We'll have a surprise, a number... And over under for my guy to Bruin over here. Um, our surprise of the week comes from Wake County and its main city. My name is Janet Cowell, and I'm running for mayor of Raleigh. I want to bring my experience as a past Raleigh city councilor, state senator representing Raleigh in the North Carolina General Assembly, and state treasurer to bear on the issues facing Raleigh. The former state treasurer, who has been out of public office, I believe, for eight years now, announced that she will run for mayor of Raleigh. I did not have this on my 2024 bingo. Neither did I. And I used to cover the city of Raleigh. Gather that few of you did. Uh, What is the shift from statewide office holder to candidate for mayor, a much less powerful role we should note? Tell us about politics, candidates, just the state of things. Yeah, so this is unusual. I I can't think of a time where someone who's had a statewide office has decided to go back to the municipal level. There's a few instances where a a state legislator, I'm thinking of former Republican Rep. Craig Horn, who's now the mayor of a small town in Union County, as okay. his sort of, I Good guess, one. retirement from state politics type gig. But this is unusual um, for her to jump back in. You know, she's been active the last few years as head of the Dix Park organization that's been uh, essentially working on developing Raleigh's new Central Park. Um, so uh, she's obviously involved in a lot of city matters. Uh, but but what surprised me about this is a lot of her base or what I would perceive uh, Cowell's base to be yeah. is similar to the current mayor, Marianne Baldwin, who's in, her, I guess, her second term. Um, so I, my initial response was, oh, is, is Baldwin not going to run? And therefore, Cowell is jumping in. Right. As the, but then I texted Baldwin and she said, you know, I've already had a campaign fundraiser. Right. I'm not going to announce yet. I'll say something in the spring. And then she made some comment about now is the time to govern, not campaign, which seemed like a dig at Cowell. So I think that maybe she was as surprised as I was to see Cowell jump in there. So you your your mind went to oh is is Baldwin running my mind went to is there beef between these two like what like why is she jumping in how would y'all Jason go ahead well my mind went to are they different on housing policy I think y'all know that's probably by far the number one biggest issue in Raleigh is just affordable housing and there's big fights between you know zoning regulations and land use and and should you be allowed to uh, you know rent a mother in law suite all, all these things are are hugely important within Raleigh and my mind went to do they have big differences on housing policy but it as far as I can tell, they don't really. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe minor, but... And but, we haven't heard enough from Cowell yet to know sort of what her... Yeah, that's d- true. Does she have a beef with how Baldwin is running the city? She hasn't really articulated it yet. I mean, there is a lot of concerns uh, about the past few years. Downtown Raleigh has crime issues. A lot of businesses are leaving. You had this whole spat earlier this year over parade policy and people mad that their parades got canceled. So people right. are... There, there are a lot of people who are not happy about city government in Raleigh. 
whether Cowell is the vehicle for that, I think sort of remains to be seen. I'm not trying to throw shade here, and maybe somebody wants to jump in on this, and maybe not. There was just something, a bit of a disconnect for me. Like, this is a former state treasurer. I am old enough to remember that Janet Cowell's name was at one time included among possible U.S. Senate candidates, and now she's running for mayor of Raleigh. And I just felt like, am I missing something here? Uh, but I guess to be to be seen on to this. To be fair, maybe she can get more done as mayor of Raleigh than she could ever do in the U.S. Senate, and she's you know being pragmatic from that standpoint. Well, and let's be fair to her, right? I mean, you said that she's been involved in Dick's Conservancy. Maybe she's just interested in, in making Raleigh a better place. I mean, you know, let, let's give her the benefit of doubt. Is that so bad? Maybe some people <laughs> run for altruistic reasons. I don't know. I mean, you don't see that too yeah, often. Yeah, we, we don't see that too often, but maybe. <laughs> I want to share an interesting graph uh, from an Axios newsletter earlier this week. It reads, Marianne Baldwin's potential re-election campaign on the heels of her 2022 race, is the incumbent now, Marianne Baldwin, in which she, uh, in which she ran just six points ahead of political newcomer, Terrence Ruth, who received close to 41 percent of the vote. The race was also close despite Baldwin's massive fundraising advantage. She brought in well over $600,000 compared to Ruth's 30000 So I thought that graph was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, an incumbent uh, didn't win by an overwhelming margin. And two, an incumbent raised $600,000 in a mayoral race. Uh, so we're going to see lots of money would be my expectation here uh, in 2024. Okay, let's get to our number of the week. Uh, and again, if there's nothing that y'all want to weigh in here, uh, we'll just move on to the next thing. But wanted to work in some different news nuggets. 14.5, this is the amount in millions of passengers uh, who traveled through Raleigh-Durham International Airport in 2023. The total establishes a new RDU record for passengers in a calendar year, surpassing the mark of 14.2 million who used RDU back in 2019. It's also worth noting from this travel-hungry radio host, RDU added four new airlines, 25 new destinations, and 49 new routes last year. Any travel notes here? It's just Friday. I like to talk it about It just means travel. that we're growing. I mean, I don't know. To yeah. me, it's as much a population and, statistic and fewer about the connections triangles. in Charlotte that yeah. we all have to negotiate. Anytime you go to the, the airport, you know we're growing. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I just want to not have to pay an additional $500 to fly out of Raleigh versus Charlotte mm. to the location. Where are you going? That's my Fly, goal. That seems like a lot, but okay. I've right, yeah. DC to save money on your yeah. national travel before. Yeah, I have too. Yeah. Mm. All right. Tweet of the week. Uh, the tweet of the week is this. The tweet reads, it's time to listen to the 65% of Americans who do not want a 2020 rematch. They have had enough and they want results. Join the common sense movement where you will be heard. No labels, exclamation point. That's the tweet. That's North Carolina's 74th governor, Pat McCrory, once a Republican, now a no labeler. But actually, I checked this week, and McCrory's voter registration is still Republican. I thought he might want to change that. Well, there's if you change it, you don't get to vote in the primary. I think he wants to vote in the Republican primary before he goes all in on whatever the no-labels ticket may be. They don't, they don't have a candidate yet, so it's hard to really know what you're supporting. All well, in on but no if labels. you're also an independent, you can vote in either primary. So Correct. I mean, Or an unaffiliated, but yeah. yes. Same I'm unaffiliated is what I mean. Yes. Okay. Um, um, let's move to something that I think will probably spark a little bit more discussion. Uh, it's an over under mobile sports betting will begin on Monday, March the 11th here in North Carolina on Wednesday, the state lottery commission adopted this as the launch date when people in the state, physically in the state can create an account, deposit money and subsequently lose it, or maybe win some, uh, Jason DeBruin, will you place your first bet before dinner, uh, on that March 11th? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be. Fired up and ready to go. I'll be I'll be making all kinds of bets. I'm just disappointed that we can't get it for the Super Bowl, but we'll do it for March Madness. That'll be just as fun. I have a functional question if one of you can answer it. So you have to be 21 to do sports mm -hmm. wagering, but you can, if you're 18, you can do a scratch ticket or, or Powerball or something like that. Why the difference, if anyone can speak to that? Because I, I saw that this week and I thought, why, why do you have to be 21 to do sports gambling? 
I don't know. It, it's possible that that was a way to get more votes in the legislature, but or maybe I'm missing something. So. Okay. Uh, Gary, um, you're a cricket fan. Um, will you, will you, can you wager on cricket? Will you, will you dare even cast sports uh, wagers? Well, first here? of all, I, I actually, Please. I actually asked about that, whether there would be cricket. And uh, I've been told, yes. Um, let's remember, there's a lot of people, particularly in the Raleigh Durham area, who are fans of cricket. There's a big England India test cricket going uh, match going on right now. Uh, I will keep my money in my own checking account. Thank Look, you. if there's any sport in which Vegas could take your money, they're going to do it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, if there's somebody that wants to place a bet on something, Vegas will be happy to take that bet. Uh, this is all good and, and fun, right? We have a lot of uh, excitement around sports, uh, sports gambling, but there are. Uh, still many who are saying that this is a dangerous, predatory uh, industry and practice that is coming into our state. Uh, if you want to take this one, Jason, what are, are some of those groups or some of those people, I don't know, either calling for or what warning signals are they sending up as we barrel toward March 11th? Well, we have had a little bit of fun, but it is absolutely true that this is for some people dangerous, just as alcoholism, in fact, in, uh, impacts some people. You know, some people can get addicted to gambling and it can be a serious problem. So there's, you know, there's helplines for these people. Um, there's guardrails that are set up to hopefully, um, you know, make sure people don't go too far down the road and, and lose too much money. Um, but, you know, again, we've been having a little bit of fun and, and certainly I intend to place a wager, but it is also important to keep in mind that it's not just an overall good and that it can hurt some people. So, uh, you know, the, the people that raise these criticisms criticisms um, and warning flags should be listened to, should be heeded, and there should be guardrails in place to protect people. And it was a really interesting bipartisan coalition on both sides when this moved through the legislature. I think it was two sessions ago um, where it failed by one vote in the House. One of the supporters was not present. Um, but you had Democrats and Republicans when it passed last year on both sides, standing firm. And so this is not a one side versus yeah, the, the other Yeah, the opponents issue. were this weird coalition of the most conservative yes. Republicans yeah. in the legislature and the most liberal <laughs> yeah. Democrats who, I, I guess it's politics is a circle and they both sort of agreed right. on this one issue that more sports gambling was going to be bad. It was very similar to the lottery debate of uh, the early mm-hmm. 2000s where you had this group of, of um, social conservatives and liberals who were believing that the you know, that gambling would prey on the poor. This time around, it seems like there was maybe a few more Republicans who were willing to go on board with uh, sports gambling as opposed to the lottery. Gary Robertson, Colin Campbell, Mary Helen Jones, and Jason DeBruin here on Due South, wrapping up the week in news and politics. Uh, Gary, maybe we'll spend, you know, a full segment on that at some point, but that was a hilarious story, a wild story of when the lottery came to fruition in this state with uh, some lawmakers missing the chamber. I mean, it was a very narrow vote, and if, if memory serves, I was not there, I believe you were. Then Lieutenant Governor Bev Perdue cast a tie-breaking vote. Is that how it played out? That's right, out? she did. She, um, it was, I don't remember the exact, but it was a deadlocked vote in the Senate. And uh, she um, it, it certainly didn't hurt her since three or four years later, she became our governor. So. Yeah. Uh, odd bedfellows is maybe a way to, to tie a bow on that one. There's something of a related sports athletic story from this week, and I'm not sure if any of you covered it. So we're just going to do this in real time here. But this pertains to conference realignment and the UNC Board of Governors. Uh, was anyone tracking this one? And can anyone give us an update on uh, how this played out? Because my understanding of it is uh, that the UNC Board of Governors is now effectively going to require um, kind of a a roadmap or a proposal from a a UNC system school if they want to leave a conference. And, you know, reading between the lines, this has to do with the ACC here. Um, uh, Can you can we speak to this at all? 
I mean, I think this is another case where, you know, the uh, you have to think of the Unity Board of Governors as sort of the proxy for the state legislature. And there's a concern, I guess, that there there could be some situation where UNC Chapel Hill gets recruited to a perhaps more exciting, more financially lucrative conference um, and then leaves the ACC, which sort of throws off the balance of North Carolina collegiate sports and the fact that most of our major teams are part of the ACC. Uh, so I think the, the powers that be in Raleigh, whether it's the legislature or the UNC Board of Governors, uh, would like to have a say-so should something like that come down the pipeline in the years to come. And this is not just a trivial issue about who plays who. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions, actually billions of dollars from TV deals that flow to conferences that then ultimately flow to universities. And so in what some people think is like this big reshuffling, if all of a sudden there's a conference that's left out of the uh, out of the deal, maybe the ACC, that could end up impacting uh, the finances of these universities in very significant ways. And left out to me is the operative phrase here. It has almost a prom feel to it, right? <laughs> Do you have a date to the prom? If you don't have a date to the prom, you better get one soon. You don't want to be left going to the prom alone. It's okay if you go to the prom alone, but it might not be okay if you don't have a conference to play in. Absolutely not, because you're missing out on a lot of money. And that's why you're looking at like the Big Ten, for instance, now has has universities all over the country, right? There's no geographic uh, definition anymore of where these conferences uh, really should be aligned. It's all about money. It's all about where you can get the biggest TV contracts. One of the new ACC members is the Stanford Cardinal, and Stanford will open up its ACC football slate in September at my alma mater, Syracuse. That is the least ACC thing anybody has said <laughs> yeah. all day. Or the most. I mean, it's all about money. Uh, that might be the well, most, to be honest. Fair enough. Good what a world. Back. What a world. Colin, um, one of the stories that you have been tracking in recent weeks is a proposed insurance rate hike. Um, what is the update on that front? As a, as a reminder to listeners, uh, there was a proposed 42% rate hike proposal, which, of course, there are many uh, different folks and industry groups uh, who are not pleased to see that figure. Yeah, so this affects uh, homeowners insurance rates. And, and this is sort of uh, a common thing we see every few years. Uh, a particular insurance company lobby uh, puts in the request that they would like to increase rates. That has to go through a whole regulatory process before it can be approved. This one's unusual because of how high it is. I mean, it's 42% average across the state, uh, but it's almost, uh, a, I think, a 100% increase. So basically, your rate would double in certain coastal counties from, I think, Carteret County uh, down the beach towards uh, Brunswick County at the South Carolina line. Uh, so a lot of folks who are on the coast are particularly upset about that. So of course, the uh, probably some of the impetus for this is, is climate change, that these are more costly properties to insure than they were 10, 20, 50 years ago. Uh, but we saw a lot of outcry because of this size of this particular increase. There was a hearing at the Department of Insurance uh, earlier this week uh, probably had at least 100 people speak, uh, both virtually and in the room, hmm. lasted almost all day. Yeah. Um, so now this goes to uh, sort of this quasi-judicial deliberation involving insurance commissioner Mike Causey, who's a Republican, who's also, I should note, up for election both in the March primary where he has a challenger and in the November election. Uh, so some pretty uh, challenging politics for him around this um, and always some concern that he wasn't present at that meeting. Uh, hearing, he says he couldn't be there because he's got to be sort of an impartial judge mm -hmm. further down the line. Uh, you know, he's got a thread of weird needle here. In the past, he's negotiated a lower increase, still an increase, but less than what the insurance companies want wanted. Um, but he has the ability to sort of reject it to some degree, but then it may wind up in court. There's a lot of, you know, red tape around this. And of course, the insurance companies have a lot of money to fight in court should they uh, choose to do so. 
Final moments here on Due South North Carolina Friday Politics and News Roundup. And we're going to turn our ear, our attention toward next week. I'll give uh, our panelists just a a minute to synthesize something that they are tracking in the coming days. Uh, And as they do that, I will remind you that next week on Due South, we'll uh, have, as usual, an assortment of programs uh, for you. On Tuesday, uh, we're going to have a check-in and an overview of what is happening at state legislatures across the South and across the country. Had an interesting conversation yesterday with Reed Wilson. He's a former Washington Post reporter uh, who founded a website called Pluribus News. And Pluribus News, if you've never heard of it, is uh, an interesting and important news site that provides comprehensive policy-related coverage of what's happening at state governments across the country. That's next Tuesday here on Due South. Gary, what's something you're tracking in the days to come? Well, it it may not happen next week, but it could. Uh, There is a pending redistricting lawsuit in the Eastern District, uh, which is basically points, you know, Raleigh and points east regarding a couple state Senate districts and whether or not uh, race uh, played too strong a role in creating those districts. So we should hear from a judge in the coming days, any day now, Mm -hmm. regarding whether um, those districts should be redrawn or at least there should be a delay uh, in the they should uh, reschedule a primary potentially for the spring on that. And so uh, many of the same things we've been hearing in the past over race and redistricting have have surfaced. Give them to me quick if you can. What are you tracking next week? The legislature is holding a hearing on a closure of a veterans facility in Fayetteville. I don't know the backstory, but I'm interested to hear it. Didn't you know it's an election year? Following the candidates, looking at what's changing well played, ahead of Mary March. Helen. Well played, Mary Helen. We're out of time, so I'll just say that I turned 40 next week. That's what I'm tracking. Oh. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday <laughs> Wednesday. Go. Send birthday cards to do south at WNC.org. You can also find Jason DeBruin, WNC's health reporter, on the gram. Thanks to Jason. Liz Schlemmer, education reporter here at WNC. Mary Helen Jones, political reporter at Spectrum News. Gary Robertson, statehouse reporter at the Associated Press and Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief at WNC. For everybody that produces Due South and my co-host, Leonita Inge, my name is Jeff Tabiri. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again on Monday at 10.